This is the Monday, April 17, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine attends the Gilded Age performances of a man whose side-splitting comedy heralded the Borscht Belt, vaudeville, and performers such as Mel Brooks, Barbara Streisand, and Jerry Seinfeld, among so many thousands of others. This man did so by performing Jewish characters for the first time with dignity, humor, and emotional depth. He also had a unique role in helping to light the Statue of Liberty in the 1880s. Yep, she was up on the pedestal, but she wasn't lit all the time. This is a fact of the statue that was lost and forgotten until today's book. This man who made a contribution to Liberty Lighting the World was born Moritz Bertram Strellinger in 1849 Bohemia but he gained worldwide fame under the stage name M.B. Curtis. Our guide in this man's wild journey is Richard Schwartz, author of The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty, The Extraordinary Rise and Fall of Actor M.B. Curtis. Richard works as a building contractor and documents Native American sites in the Bay Area, he lives in Berkeley, and that happens to be a key city in M.B. Curtis's life. But our author originally hails from Philadelphia and Temple University, with a stop on a Pennsylvania Dutch farm along the way, proving again that there is no one route to writing great history, although we both do have Rutgers University's Scarlet Knights in common. Maybe it's something in the water of the old Raritan River. You can visit our guest at richardschwartz.info and dig into his other titles, which include Earthquake Exodus, 1906, as well as Eccentrics, Heroes, and Cutthroats of Old Berkeley, and Berkeley 1900. Plus, with an eye on those Native American sites, The Circle of Stones, an investigation of the Circle Stones in Stampede Valley, Sierra County. Okay, now that we've packed our vaudeville trunk, Let's hit the road with Richard Schwartz and me, the man who lit Lady Liberty. I'm joined via Skype by Richard Schwartz, author of The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. You bet, Tim. You have a bunch of photos and illustrations throughout The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty, M.B. Curtis stares at you from the page. He's still so full of life. Really, some of those pictures you find a little bit eerie sometimes because he seems as if he might just open his mouth and speak to you off of the page. 
Walk us through how you first met him and how he convinced you to tell his story. Sure. I got into American history quite by accident. I went to my local historical society to see a film of a streetcar going through Berkeley in 1906. I thought that would be fun to see. And that very day, they were throwing away a stack of 100-year-old bound newspapers. And as soon as I heard them say they're going to put them in the dumpster, like a jack-in-the-box, I popped up and said, I'll take them just instinctively, just to save them. I took them home, and I made the mistake of opening one up on my dining room table and kind of came to three days later. They were just so amazing. The stories were so remarkable, and they were so different than today and exactly the same as today. And that instigated my interest in local history. And there were three out-of-print local history books on Berkeley. And in each of these books, which I read from start to finish, there was this one guy who was absolutely different than all the other characters in the book. And this was M.B. Curtis. And he just seemed like a high-energy particle, you know, and it was like, No one had done more for the town before or since than this guy. And he would usually just do it all for free because, you know, he was catapulted into wealth and fame overnight unexpectedly. He'd been living in flop houses as an actor, a good actor, but a supporting actor. And he really couldn't make a living at it. And one day he gets this role and the audiences were just mesmerized and he knew it. He could feel it. And instead of the play going for three days, it went for weeks and weeks and weeks, all because of his performance. And he realized, this is my chance. This is it for me. And he bought the play and made a fortune with it and eventually came to Berkeley, you know, never having had money, but now having more of it than he knew how to handle. So if the fire department said, we need a fire bell, well, he would just buy it for them. And if the Baseball teams came and we need uniforms. Well, he would just get them. But there was always one condition that he wanted the firehouse and the baseball teams named not after him, but of his character that he portrayed in the play, Samuel of Posen. So the fire station was called Posen Station and the baseball teams were called the Posens and, you know, on and on and on it went. And it just seemed like there was something totally different about the guy and people would flock around him. I started reading everything I could about him and the town was just so enthralled with him being here and he would attract people from all over the country. And when he bought some real estate here, everybody wanted to move in his little development and live near him. Because he was an actor, he would have contacts with people all over the country. So if Little Berkeley needed a bank. He he had a contact and he would bring the guy in. And he was just, you know, he was just such a dramatic person with such creativity. It's not a simple story. He was not often an easy person, but he was extremely talented, extremely persistent, and he never gave up. Just when you think, boy, that's going to do him in or that's it for him, he gets back up and starts all over again, always with his creativity. And it was just People were so tickled to watch it. It was like he was a phenomenon. And this one early photo, there's like a sea of people in front of the new Posen station on the day it opened. And he was responsible for making a huge donation to it. So it came about in the first place. And there's a sea of people, but my eyes went directly to him. And I looked at him and I felt like I knew him. I knew him intimately. You know, and, I, and there was his wife and 
you know, his dog, his big dog was right next to him. And I thought, you know, I, you know, the guy loves dogs and I love dogs. And, you know, there was a sense of familiarity with everything he was doing. And, you know, this was the initial pass. This was what little bit was in the three out of print history books. But then I started doing my own research. And the more I researched, the more I found that was phenomenal, that wasn't common knowledge. And the story just got bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where I realized, how was this man ever forgotten? Because they even compared the president of the United States to him, to his character in the play. And cigars were named after his character and boats. And his every move was followed in the country in his day. And yet somehow he got forgotten. And I think it's likely it's because you can't see anything of him. There's no film that survives, even though he became a pioneer in the silent movie industry. Those early films didn't survive. So, you know, Chaplin and, you know, Keaton, because you can watch their art. And one of the things that I learned, these invisible ties that you don't get unless you put years and years and years in. When Charlie Chaplin was at the height of his fame, Naturally, people were trying to imitate him. And then there was this one guy, Charles Chaplin, that went around and dressed exactly like him and tried to duplicate his act. And Charlie Chaplin asked him to stop and the guy wouldn't. So Chaplin had to take him to court. And in this court case was the fact that Charles Chaplin's defense was, look, Charlie Chaplin took elements of his tramp character from other people, for instance, he got the idea of oversized shoes from M.B. Curtis and that funny walk. And, you know, it was like, oh, my God, this is something you wouldn't know unless you kept going and going and following every lead. Yeah, that name wouldn't mean anything to you. And yet I picture you researching. I can tell how passionate you are about M.B. Curtis. And I felt the same way now, having read it, you take up for the guy and you are reading here, researching it, reading some of these news stories for the first time anybody has read them in maybe 120, 130 years. And I picture you sitting there at the microfilm machine and finding his next amazing recovery, his next amazing reinvention and getting up off that mat again and looking up in a silent library and saying, none of you, none of you people know how amazing this guy was. How has he forgotten? You want to start grabbing people and yeah, just tell them the story. <laughs> Fortunately, instead of doing that, you gave us the man who lit Lady Liberty, but it's a much more efficient and, you know, less likely to get you arrested than grabbing people and, you know, reenacting any of this. Samuel Posen bits, but he is somebody that is so full of life. And it's amazing to me that he could be forgotten for so long and then reach out of the pages of history, grab you and say, hey, tell my story here of a time before radio and motion pictures, decades before and after the turn of the 20th century, how I stepped out here and I did my bit. And he doesn't seem like he was a guy who was very full of himself, but it's a story you want to tell for him because you like him. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it was his creativity and his talent combined with just being a regular guy. It was this juxtaposition that both made him an incredible character and very human. I mean, he, a lot of his life was not easy. He didn't have an easy time, but that's what made him struggle. That's when you start to see him as a real human being as opposed to just you know a cardboard story and that was the whole purpose of his play was before he took on this play a jewish male was not allowed to portray a jewish male on stage 
It just wasn't allowed. And the portrayal of a Jewish male was a series of superficial stereotypes, and the character was just an excuse to portray these stereotypes, and you would laugh at him, not with him. And one of Curtis's major changes in his day and accomplishments was he used the Trojan horse of humor, so people were helpless to stop him. I liken him to the Jewish Jackie Robinson of the stage, and he used humor to break these barriers. And once he did it, his success was more than phenomenal. I mean, on his first tour of the country, he was unknown. By the time he went from New York to St. Louis, back through Atlanta and back to New York, he was the biggest act in the country. He just had this extraordinary sense. He grew up, he was an immigrant from Hungary as a six-year-old, and he grew up in a ethnically diverse neighborhood. How do I know that? Because when you read the census of everybody around them, there were people from all over the world, you know, and mostly immigrants. And it was said that he was an incredible mimic. And you can just imagine that it was from his neighborhood. That's where it all started. What followed his, you know, what follows every success is imitation. And immigrants are pouring into the country at this point. And the play was kind of the way the country was using the theater to work out their feelings about immigrants. And it was the first time he, Curtis, got to portray a Jewish male on stage and people laughed with him. You know, it took the sting out. And I read a lot of, you know, thousands and thousands of newspaper reviews and editorials and periodicals. And one of the things a periodical said when they were talking about ethnic plays and Curtis and, you know, every ethnic group, once they got to a certain number in this country, they would have their own theater. And the point of this article was everybody wants to be seen, that it's better to be seen even if it's not all good than not be represented on stage at all. That felt horrible. And I, I was always, I never forgot that either. It seems amazing that there was a time when Jewish people weren't involved in performing, never mind not wanted there, not wanting on stage, but you would have people dressed up in sort of this version of blackface with with the grotesque features. These are some pictures that you have in your book, illustrations, I guess you'd say. And yet he arrives here as an immigrant and he decides he's going to break that mold. And I wanted to ask what debt did you find yourself thinking that descendants of those early immigrant acts who are actors today, we all know the names. I mean, it's become a reverse stereotype now where we see many Jewish people in entertainment. We all know the Jackie Masons and we all know Mel Brooks. I just saw him at Radio City downstairs a few months ago. He did a hmm. screening of Blazing Saddles. Like it seems so natural, all of us. Seinfeld, you know, there's a, in fact, that one episode we were talking about before we started recording that there's that dentist and he decides he wants to be Jewish and wildly. <laughs> And he says, you know, he just wants the jokes, Jerry says. He just wants to be able to do our humor. Well, here is the original guy. Here's the here's the pioneer. He's the first man stepping off the Mayflower and doing the funny walk with the big shoes. And as you said, the Borscht Belt laughing with us, not laughing at us. This is the guy. So what debt to the descendants owe him? And what was the world like then when he tries to break into it compared to today? Well, what the world was like, first of all, a Jewish person normally, they didn't get those roles. So many of them took jobs behind the scenes as stagehands or writers, and, and they made what progress they could behind the scenes. They just weren't allowed 
to do much on stage. The other part of it is there were a lot of stock companies and the major, more well-known actors would come in and perform with these stock companies. And that's kind of how it was in San Francisco when Curtis came there in the 1870s. And he joined a stock company and got a tremendous amount of well-rounded experience, you know, from Shakespeare to low comedy and everything in between. And he really learned his trade. And as time went on, the theater industry, you know, there was a thing where there were interreligious marriages. Well, then there would be a, a, a lot of plays about that. And it was like you began to see that the theater was where the society worked out their feelings on things, on many things. And then when you read the critics, and I, I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of critics' comments in the paper days following, especially initially when he started this play, which was a Jewish drummer, an immigrant Jewish drummer. Now here the actor's an immigrant and Jewish, and he's performing an immigrant Jewish drummer. And a drummer is the guy with the little briefcase around his neck, and he opens it up, and there's you know, buttons and zippers and you know, there were different forms of drummers. So it was kind of fascinating that he's performing kind of resembled a lot of his circumstances. And the whole purpose of the play was to show you that, and Samuel Posen, the immigrant drummer, didn't know how to dress. He didn't know how to talk. He didn't know how to act. And yet the purpose of the play was he may look that way, but after you interact with him, you see that he had a lot to offer and sometimes more than your established American. And that was, you know, one of the didactic purposes of the play. And I want people to know that when you talk about all you read, and I talked about you there on the microfilm, that that doesn't mean that The Man Who Lady Liberty includes all of that. There's not a lot of endless pages of you reprinting things. This is a book you can read fast. I always feel like I should apologize to authors when I say, gosh, I read your book in two days because it sounds as if I'm, gosh, you spent, what, 20 years working on this and I read it in a weekend. But you can read it very fast. You really had the editorial eye there where you said, well, I'll keep in the things that I love, introduce people to them. And then you can go like I did and learn more about the guy if you want, try to find some more things. But I just want people to know it's certainly not a dense read. It's, no, it, it was very brisk for me. And, and a lot of that is the editor who I worked with, David Hoff, is the most incredible editor. And he was like magic. He was really like magic. And he's a big reason that it reads so well and fast. And it was a crushing 1,200-page manuscript, and I'm a building contractor, was doing this at night and all weekend and you know every minute I could. And a 1,200-page manuscript, I really felt the weight of it and wondered if I'd ever crawl out from under it. <laughs> um, but you know, meeting up with David, but by then I had it down to like 649 pages, and David helped me get it down to a 328-page book with illustration. So, and he's a major reason why it reads so well. When you have to make sure that you put your manuscript on a load-bearing wall or it's going to go through the well floor, said. it might be too long. <laughs> well said, with me hanging on to it. I want to go back to the Samuel of Posen and explain it to people because a lot of these things are sort of forgotten, this character of the drummer. But you and I discovered a mutual love of the Twilight Zone. I found myself thinking of what is the second episode in the Twilight Zone. It's called One for the Angels. 
in which Ed Wynn, who if people watch old films and old TV shows, very early TV, they've seen him a million times, but he plays that sidewalk pitchman, and Murray Hamilton is Death himself, who's there to take a little girl, and he's trying to talk him out of it, is Ed Wynn by this pitch that's going to be the ultimate pitch, one for the Angels. Talk about the role of those figures in this period of America, and what Samuel Posen becomes here as Curtis designs him and brings him out before audiences. You bet. Well, you know, it's funny. What I found is in studying history, you go from the minute detail, you're getting as close as you can to an event or a topic or a person, but then you have to step way back and see what's the overview, what was happening in the big picture and in the country. And then you go back in and you keep going in and out like that. So one of the things was manufacturing in this country started changing. And, you know, in the Revolutionary War, if you made beer, you sold it in your town and you just made it and sold it to whoever walked in. Times were changing, you know, like in the 1870s and 80s where manufacturing was getting bigger. And because of the railroads really taking over and making these small towns connected to the big city only by the railroads because they would have never been connected without it. And what you see is the drummers who were often drumming up business for manufacturing companies or just selling things on their own, but it was more often they were drumming for a company, could take a train and go to these little places. And what would happen is drummers were often mistrusted because they were away from their wives they were away from their bosses. They were away from their priests. And so they were much more susceptible to life's temptations. And the other thing that disturbed people, other than, hey, you're bringing big city values to us and we don't want them, was that sales was a new concept back then. Being a, quote, salesman was really just a professional salesman was just getting started. And they had a rough life and they, they were often, you know, one of, the, one of the problems small towns had with them is they felt, look, the American character is based on us knowing who you are and you perform in these ways that are predictable and dependable. And they felt a salesman would come in and if the store owner was love jokes and whiskey, well, they'd come in with jokes and whiskey. And if the store owner was quiet and reserved, they'd come in quiet and reserved. And there was something about that that bothered some people like, well, you should just have your own personality and not conform and adapt to who's around you. And they, they felt like that was a breach of American personality. And the fact that they came in on the train, and this was another new phenomenon that was happening more and more to small towns as they reached them. So the drummers would band together they would form associations. And actually, they were thrilled with this play, Samuel of Posen, because it was about them in a positive way, which in the beginning was rare for them. It was kind of this thing where when they banded together, they formed associations, travelers associations, and they formed insurance companies because a lot of them died on the road. And you know, back then, a lot of men would keep a piece of paper in their pocket. If you find me dead, please return my body to this place Gosh. or my family. Or, you know, they kept it in their pockets because I've read newspaper articles of this very thing occurring. So 
one of the things they did was they formed a special insurance for traveling men. And one of these, at least one of these companies has survived. And by an amazing comical coincidence, that company insures my house. Ha. And the name of that company is Travelers Insurance. Oh, wow. Now it makes sense. Yeah, it all makes sense. But like, I never put two and two together until I studied this. And then I went, oh my God, Travelers Insurance. So they had to band together. So the drummers loved Samuel of Posen because it presented them in a positive light and they would have conventions and go see the play. And, you know, the critics, the staid power broker critics hated the play very often because they considered it low humor and they didn't understand a lot of the phrases. Some of it was Yiddish and, you know, Samuel of Posen was extremely hysterical in the way he would say things and his accent. And the crowd would just laugh from the moment they sat down. And time after time, you would read these reviews and the crowd never stopped laughing from the time the curtain went up. And this one guy from New York went to see his opening performance in Detroit. And he said, I went there and I was trying not to like it. You know, I'm a sophisticated New Yorker. (laughs) And he said, and if I tell you that him just walking on the stage and saying, you know, Bishness is bishness. It wouldn't sound funny to you. But he said, sitting there, I couldn't help but start laughing hysterically and I couldn't stop. (laughs) So there was something unexplainable in what he did. He knew what he was doing. And they also say that he used his eyes and his eyebrows and the lining of his vest and every minute little thing to elicit this humor. So he was like a master at it. And so many critics said, you know, he's a true artist and he was the first guy to portray this character. So drummers were a new breed. And it's fascinating to me that Curtis's play, Samuel Posen, started in about 1880. And if you read Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi, he has a scathing part of these two salesmen on the steamboat. And all they do is talk business. One guy was in the oleo business. And he just, he couldn't talk about anything but margarine. He was just so fascinated with it. (laughs) And it was like a scathing thing that Twain was doing against these guys. And yet in 1889, now, and this is like, as the drummers are rising and Twain kind of portrays the resistance that the American mind has to all this. We don't like you talking about business. That's 83. In 89, he writes Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. And Hank is thrown back into time, just like Samuel Posen is thrown into a, a world he doesn't know from Poland to America with no skills or anything but his wits to try and adapt. Well, Hank is thrown back in time to the Middle Ages into a time he doesn't know, and he has to use his wits and such. But Twain in this one kind of makes him into a salesman, and he has knights in shining armor, but they're wearing sandwich boards advertising things. So it's like the remarkable change from 83 to 89 in Twain's portrayal of salesmen. I found that was amazing. And it kind of portrayed the acceptance in American culture of this new phenomenon, which at first they really, really resisted. And, and you know, and rightly so. And that's part of 
Curtis's legacy, I find myself thinking when you're saying these other drummers love it because it casts them in a positive light. These might be people who they could have anti-Semitic leanings to. They could have been out there somewhere maybe laughing at one of these portrayals, never thinking of it. You know, if you haven't met a certain person of a certain ethnic background, you might not know, especially Jewish people who there are so many myths about them through history. Then you go see this guy and you say, wow, not, not only is he funny and making me laugh, but he's portraying what I do in a positive light. And there were tons of salesmen back then, right? So you might be saying, oh, hey, he made my father look good for once or my brother or my cousin who's a salesman i'm not ashamed of him anymore so it really is a life that he lives and be curtis that you cover here in the man who lit lady liberty that brings us closer in so many ways you can see the seeds of really the whole american culture exactly changing it's turning on him you know he's not necessarily the focal but he's certainly getting on board with the arc of history yeah and you could say he changed the course of american culture and you could debate how much thrust, but it was significant. You know, just by reading all these newspaper articles, you realize the change and the focus and the examination that, you know, and even when people didn't like it, you could see they're they're really just, if you really translate it, it's we're losing power. You know, there's a new middle class coming and we're losing power and our culture is changing and, and it's painful. That's the real message that they were saying when they started putting him down and saying, you know, he's guttural and his humor is guttural and, hey, what's wrong with Shylock? Shylock, we respect it. It was fascinating to read all that. The topic of immigrants brings us to the woman in your title, the Lady Liberty in your title of the man who <laughs> lit Lady Liberty. What M.B. Curtis does again and again in his life that you mentioned earlier is he reaches in his own pocket when he sees something he needs to change. You know, there's always these fundraisers that people will do. And sometimes you'll ask the actor, well, what are you doing and giving? And they'll say, well, just of my time is is valuable, which granted it is. But this is a guy who, as you said, he practically has, seems to have holes in his pocket over the course of the book because he just says, oh, you need it? I'll reach into my pocket. Uh, Della Reese said this about Red Fox once. She said he was just, if someone was in need, he would reach into his pocket, whoever it was, and he would help them out. And it made me think of M.B. Curtis here because yeah. he is in this period where we have the immigrant I was referring to being the Statue of Liberty. You're in the city of New York. You're an immigrant. You know it's coming here from France's gift. There's this struggle to build the pedestal to stand her atop of. Then New York City's only Manhattan and the Bronx. To give you an idea, this is a while ago. It's before a consolidation into greater New York. So what makes him reach into his pocket and what's that part of his legacy? Well, Congress back then was kind of like what we're facing now. They didn't want to allocate funds for just about anything. And when the Statue of Liberty was first proposed to be brought over, France was going to donate the statute and the United States was going to build the pedestal. And Congress refused to allocate money to build the pedestal. And it was like this horrible, you know, embarrassment. And so Pulitzer, who had actually, he was also a Hungarian immigrant, just like Curtis, he had some newspapers in um, New York, and in the world, one of his newspapers, he put out a call to the average citizen and said, let's do this together. The government won't. If you donate a penny or $100 or $1,000, I will put your name all next to each other. Whether, whether it's a penny or 100 you'll be next to each other, and I will print every donor's name. And this was such a success that 
he raised over the amount that was needed for the pedestal. It was like $55,000, something like that. And the pedestal was built. And then, you know, the statute is erected. There's dignitaries from all over the world come. Bartholi, the designer and builder of the statute, is there. And it's October 28th, 1886. There was a parade somewhere between a quarter of a million and a million people. You know, and everybody wanted to be in it. Every group, you know, wanted to be in this parade. They knew this was the most important thing in American history since the Civil War. You know, this was a moment. And the statue gets dedicated, but it's raining and they don't do the lights right away. You know, this whole thing, the Statue of Liberty, first and foremost, is a lighthouse. It's a beacon for the harbor and the shipping. And secondly, it's a monument. It's a, it's a work of art. So those are two very different lighting needs. And there was this struggle. You know, the, 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 the people who didn't want to spend money said, look, it's just a lighthouse and that's all we're going to address. But the original agreements about the statute was it, too, was supposed to be lit. And, you know, this is what immigrants are supposed to see from miles away. And it was also the symbolism of it all, of lighting it up, was as important to Americans to look up and see what's important to to our nation and our culture. So there was no light after the dedication. And the people were going wild. This is like an international humiliation for us. So finally, like four days later, and they only had set up lighting on a, on, a, on a temporary basis for the dedication. When the weather changed on November 1st, 1886, there was a big fireworks display, and you can see pen and inks of it. It's pretty magnificent with ships in the harbor, and you know everybody wants to be in the harbor that night. And then they lit it up for the first time. And what happened was the lighting wasn't really efficient. It wasn't properly set. And I do lighting design as a contractor. So I know, especially in outdoor lighting, you have to go there at night and tweak the angles and tweak things to get it just right because a small movement can make a huge difference in the lighting effect. And what happened was when they turned the lights on from a coal-fired dynamo, the pedestal was lit and the torch was lit and Lady Liberty was in darkness. And there was all these political cartoons, you know, this is horrible. How can they do this? And there's one political cartoon of Lady Liberty bending down and holding her torch in front of this salty sailor who's about to light his pipe. And she's asking him to light her torch, (laughs) you know, and that's in the book. So there was this tremendous anger and disappointment at the lighting because the statute itself was in total darkness. So the president, Grover Cleveland, extended it and let it go till November 7th. And then the lights went out because it really wasn't worked out how to light it. (laughs) And Grover knew how to pinch a penny. (laughs) Yeah. Bartholi kind of had this artistic thing in mind, but the technical details were left to the Americans to work out as usual. You know, we were the technical people and a lot of work needed to be done. So from November 7th, when it went out till like the 22nd of November, there was no light. And that's when Curtis came to town. He came to town like November, I think it might have come first or second. He came to New York to perform a new play. And here he's an immigrant. Lady Liberty is dark. He thought, you know, I'm an immigrant. I can't let this happen. And because he was kind of still near the top of his career, he had the money to do it. And he talked with the theater owner 
And they decided that this is patriotism and publicity all mixed into one. He said, for the time I'm here, I'm going to light the Statue of Liberty because it's just too disrespectful for it to be out. And he gave the guys who were running this dynamo $800. And this lights came on. And in reminiscences and later articles, they would talk about how Curtis loved bringing people down there and showing them the light. And he was just like thrilled with this. And it never made it into the history books prior to this book. And I think the reason is all the official government documents never had them accepting. I mean, they knew him offering, but they wouldn't accept anything. And so there's no official government record. And, and I know why, because you can just see it. Curtis went to the guys running the dynamo. He didn't go to the government. That wouldn't have been his style. He just handed them 800 bucks and said, light him up, light her up. And it happened. And that act alone, you would have thought would put him in, in, in the pantheon of American mythological figures. Just that one act, because he's the only citizen in the history of this country to do that. And this battle over the lighting went on for many, many years to beyond 1900. And it was back and forth between just being a lighthouse and being a lighthouse and a monument of art. And they're two different needs. And, you know, how much money does it cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was a point in 1895 when they were threatening to just make it back into a lighthouse and the hell with all this other expense. And Curtis again offered, you know, his services to light it. So it's like, how did that? I know how it got lost because there was no official records. And the, and the way I found it was I was going through every single issue of certain dramatic newspapers to follow. Curtis and his career and his plays and his wife. And I found it in theatrical newspapers. And then later it was in the world. It's like a new piece of Statue of Liberty history and well-deserved. And it's kind of like the everyman's history of the Statue of Liberty. You know, that there's the common man, the immigrant who the statue is about helping to bring it to its full fruition, you know, to its rightful place. And, you know, I think I was probably 10, 12 years into my research before I even found any of that. And Statue of Liberty historian Barry Moreno was extremely helpful, and we would sit around and have these amazing talks. I mean, he's an immigration expert. And Carol Peralt, who worked for the National Park Service, did amazing work, research on the lighting of the Statue of Liberty. And, you know, through these, these wonderful people, I got to really see this story and see how it was never really made it into the history books. And, you know, that was another reason for doing this book. I mean, I needed to tell about Curtis's life. I had to do it. I even met some of his descendants, David Strellinger, a wonderful guy. And he gave me photos of Curtis's mom and pop. <laughs> and he scanned the family Bible, the front of the family Bible, which had every child's birth date. And, you know, because you find a lot of different birthdays for Curtis. And there it is in the family Bible. I don't need to search anywhere else. I think his parents knew when he was born. You know, <laughs> His mother would remember at least. Yes, I would think so. <laughs> Our guest is Richard Schwartz, author of The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty, The Extraordinary Rise and Fall of Actor M.B. Curtis. Check out this and his other works at richardschwartz.info. Says of The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty... Quote, how fortunate we are to have Richard Schwartz to put color in M.B. Curtis's cheeks, a glint in his eyes, and have him stride the stage again, unquote. 
Richard, the stage was certainly where M.B. Curtis felt at home, but in a pattern that we're familiar with today in the century since his time, this national folk hero struggles with typecasting and keeping the Samuel of Posen character fresh in sequels. Although he has done this great thing for Lady Liberty, he's not a self-promoter. So, you know, you said about looking up there at the statue. It would have been a very high place to look because the statue is so massive. The skyline wouldn't have dwarfed her yet. But he is not the one who's trying to be way up there. He could have put this money into publicity and all kinds of things. But he chooses to do this altruistic thing and in a way maybe costs himself a little bit. And your chapter 11 is titled The Long Slow Fade. So this kind of begins where he it's not an overnight failure as much as he's an overnight success. So what would you pinpoint as the peak of M.B. Curtis's rise and how does his fall begin? Well, you know, I think his best times were in the first few years of his new play. It was a totally new character. People were absolutely fascinated. They had never seen anything like it. They could not stop laughing. It broadened the culture. And, you know, here's a guy who had nothing, who was having trouble making his rent. And all of a sudden, he's phenomenally wealthy. He did the first benefit to start the Actors Fund, because it used to be if an actor got sick or had an accident and couldn't work, actors had to pass the hat or do some kind of benefit. It was a lot of work, and it just wasn't working all that well enough. So he was one of the people who helped start what's called the Actors Fund. And this group would take care of actors that were ill or old or you know, otherwise infirmed. And it's fascinating that at the end of M.B. Curtis's life, he was taken care of by the very organization he helped begin in the early 1880s. You know, they were taking care of him in 1920. So he did a lot of these benefits, you know, like a fireman was killed in the line of duty and he would do a benefit of his play to help the family, you know, if, if he heard of something when he was in town. And I think what it boiled down to is David Huff, who I mentioned was this incredible editor. Well, one of the reasons we decided to work together was what does he do when he's not editing? He's an actor. Huh. <laughs> so it was like fate. And he was very aware that, look, this guy, like there was one instance where he comes to town and, you know, he's his own manager. So he's got all these wild actors trying to corral him and get ready and all the props. And, you know, it's a phenomenal, the travel arrangements, the contracts, it's more than a person could do and be an actor. And he comes to town and there was a poisonous cigar in the, during the play, which knocks him out. And the theater owner was supposed to get the cigars. And Curtis comes to town. He's got 10,000 things on his mind. And the theater owner didn't. said, well, you can get them. And Curtis flew off the handle at him. And David said this amazing thing. You know, he says, well, you could kind of look at him as a prima donna. And that's what the paper was trying to portray him as. And it's believable because you could see that happening. But as he pointed out, the guy had so much on his plate at all times. And, you know, a lot of times they're doing one show and packing up that night, getting on the train the next morning for the next night in another town. And you can imagine what that was like. So it's like he doesn't know where the cigar stores are in town and he doesn't have enough time to go get them. And then it becomes a lot more human. And he wasn't a prima donna, but the paper often portrayed him that way. And, you know, I'm sure sometimes he was just like anybody who's under too much stress, you know. 
The New York Herald in 1921 called the then late Mr. Curtis, quote, an historic figure in the American theater, almost entirely unknown to the present generation. That jumped out at me from your book because if he was already forgotten a century ago almost, I wonder how we can expect people to remember him today. And I wanted you to give us the pitch for why readers should take the time to get to know him in The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty. I think because he was a phenomenal human being with amazing dreams that he would follow, and he matched it with this incredible creativity that people around him just didn't have. And that's why they were so entertained by being near him and just watching his life, because his life was about following his dreams with a great passion. And his early success in the theater gave him the financial tools to do just that. He was following these big theatrical dreams his whole life. And I think, you know, if you want to know why he was forgotten, what we haven't talked about at all is in 1891, he took his wife, who was also an actress, to see Sarah Bernhardt performing Camille. And his wife was French-Canadian. Sarah Bernhardt was here from France, so his wife had to see this. She was performing the same play, so she had to see Sarah Bernhardt. And, and they were really quite the couple. They were in love for so many, so many years. And, you know, you could just tell. And basically, he was used to being on the stage. So he kind of got bored and said, and they they went out with another couple. And he said, hey, I'm going to get a drink. I'll be back. And what happens is he goes out to a nearby other theater where he had some friends and he was drinking. And then he all of a sudden realizes, oh, my God, the play must be over. I got to pick up my wife. And he, and he runs out and he's trying to get back to pick up his wife so they can go home because he was living in Berkeley. And this was in San Francisco. They would take the ferry. And what happened is he said he got accosted and mugged. And this guy is you know, hitting him with a with a club and he's fighting back and he's drunk and he's dazed. And this policeman comes along, San Francisco policeman. They were like a half block from the police station. And he puts nippers, which are like a handcuff that closes if you resist, so it becomes tighter. He puts nippers on them both because I guess he was trying to figure out what was going on. And he was taking them both back to the station. And as Curtis tells it, this guy pulls out a revolver, shoots and kills the policeman, and then starts shooting at Curtis to kill him. And Curtis falls back. The bullet holes in the fence support the truthfulness of this. The guy shot at him, and then the guy took off running. And then Curtis took off running because he thought the guy's trying to kill him. Thus ensues three murder trials, which go on for years. And here's a guy who, you know, he's an actor. He wanted to be loved. He just was in his element, whether he's entertaining in a room or on stage or just making people smile and laugh. That's what he loved to do. Now he's in a cell for years and he's accused of murder, which, you know, he adamantly says he didn't do. And, you know, I went back and forth on this, but the more evidence I studied, the more I saw that the evidence supported that he was telling the truth. And sadly, the San Francisco Police Department was, there was mind boggling corruption back in those days. So after those two and a half years of trials, he's not the same guy. You know, I think today we would call it post-traumatic stress. And, you know, he's also getting older and it's like, you know, his play had been successful, wildly successful, more successful than any other play in the history of the United States in its day. 
but times were changing and he's getting older. So he started doing other things like being a manager. So he wasn't in the limelight. He took a troupe of African-American dancers and singers and musicians, phenomenally talented troupe to Australia and New Zealand. He took a, ma- a magician to Australia and New Zealand. After that, he got into movies, the silent movies for a little while. He was on that aging, changing times fade. And it must have been very difficult for him because he had known such adoration by the whole nation that to fall out of that and to be accused of murder um, and of a policeman, nonetheless, you know, that had to tear at his soul. And that's why that caused the slow fade, because he never was able to deal with that. And, And he never really had the time because he had spent his fortune trying to defend himself in court. And, you know, they pretty much lost everything. He didn't have an easy life, but there were certainly many, many, many magical years. And there were certainly years that were filled with Herculean troubles. And you would read in the papers of the day, his troubles would have crushed most men. But he gets back up and he starts over. And, you know, I mean, they admired him. You know, and some people were convinced he killed the cop and didn't want anything to do with them. And I'm sure that you know, it was pretty painful reality for a guy who's an actor who wants to be loved and wants a community, you know? Yeah, his obituary in the LA Times stated that Curtis's life itself was a drama of surprising events. You certainly get that out of the book. And I wasn't surprised you said that you only came across the Statue of Liberty item later on because I was thinking this is something maybe that jumps out, but he has so many little stories in his life, so many things. (laughs) See, that's the sound of an author that's passionate about their subject. (laughs) Well, the thing that got me was my 1,200-page manuscript had all of these incredible stories. And I made them sidebars because there's the true flow and trunk of the story. But these sidebars are so delicious and show the man in such a more immediate way and a more fruitful way that I had to keep a lot in. But some of them, I called it killing the babies. You know, you work for years finding these and writing them and refining them. And you're so proud to know them. And like you said, nobody's known this story for 120 years. You know, in this little thing that probably only a, a thousand people read in this newspaper and no one ever knew it again. And it was totally asleep. Every story can't be in the book, but a whole lot of them are. I tried to keep, you know, my favorite ones, but there were so many great stories as well that I could tell in talks, but they didn't make it into the book. But I think yeah. the best ones did. Well, you do have a website, right? RichardSchwartz.info. Well, we have one final question before the curtain call, so I'll ask it now. You write in The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty that M.B. Curtis's life is both an inspiration and an admonition. What do you hope people will absorb on both of those? I can say that this man found something in himself that was absolutely magical for everybody. And he knew it. His eyes were open enough that he knew this was what he was supposed to follow. And he had the courage to do it. And look what it brought him. It brought him magic and fame and and fortune and this incredibly dramatic life where he could pursue his dreams. One day he wanted to get a bunch of new vests. And in in a classic Samuel Posen act, he bought like 50 vests in the morning because he used them all on stage. But you can imagine the pain and the horror of here you had the world in your hand. There was not a person who could escape hysterical laughing because you made them laugh. And yet when you leave the stage, 
it doesn't protect you from the ravages of life that life goes after everybody with. You know what I mean? And it was like, I think he thought, I've made it now. Now I'm on easy street. And it wasn't. And that's the admonition that fame and fortune won't protect you from real life. And don't expect everything to change. A lot does, but a lot doesn't. That's the admonition. Well, Richard Schwartz, I certainly enjoyed meeting not just you as the author, but also M.B. Curtis here as a man forgotten. I'd love to be able to help in some small way to bring back a forgotten figure that really was a folk hero, really deserves to be remembered. He is remembered here very well, lovingly in The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty. Thank you for joining us today to share this pioneering entertainer. I hope readers will take this journey with you and be enlightened by it. A little pun there. Because <laughs> That was good. M.B. Curtis, he's really worth knowing, and we're both smiling and laughing here reading about him. What more could you ask for from a book? Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Again, the book is The Man Who Lit Lady Liberty. The Extraordinary Rise and Fall of Actor M.B. Curtis. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take you to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just a few extra clicks, you can help keep the flux capacitor on the old time machine humming like usual. And think about it, Pulitzer had all those names in the paper, some of them only gave him a few cents. I would like to take a moment to remember the typesetters, by the way. Imagine putting all those letters of all those names into the machine to print out those papers, especially if they were names as long as mine. So thanks to all those typesetters and everybody who oiled up those printing presses at Pulitzer's World, you played a role in lighting the Statue of Liberty too. My sincere thanks to Richard Schwartz for joining us and for putting M.B. Curtis back on the stage where he belongs. Pay him a visit at richardschwartz.info And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this episode of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling today and have a great week we leave you with the song liberty shine by singer songwriter val hovick check it out on his listen to me now album My grandpa talked all the time about that boat Riding on nine, he took across the pond To a foreign land 
For six nights and seven days he sat on the bow and looked amazed Staring into the blue, there was no turning back Ellis Island bound, yeah they pulled into the harbor He never felt so free when he finally saw her Back on board, yeah, joined the army to fight in the war Filled with American pride, running through his veins He never talked about the time he spent in the trenches Fighting on the line, but he always talked about that beautiful day New York City bound, they passed that lady with the torch That's where he saw Grandma, yeah Blowing on the pole Yeah.